Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Now we're in uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're taking a few weeks here to look at this book of 1 Thessalonians. This is a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Thessalonica uh, back in the probably 50s or 60s AD. It's probably one of the very, very first um, letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church uh, back when he was writing letters, when he was traveling around starting new churches. Uh, and we find ourselves today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at four short verses, verses four, uh, verses 9 to 12 today. And so uh, if you would follow along with me, you can follow on the, scripture, on the screen. You can follow along in uh, the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like. Uh, by the way, if you like that Pew Bible and you would want to take it with you, that's our gift to you. Take it with you. Um, but now we turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. About brotherly love... You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone." This is the word of the Lord. Uh, of all the things out there in the world that you would say, of, of all the, the tools or cultural artifacts that you would say draw people together the most, what, what do you think of most? When I say there's, when I describe something out in the world that draws people together into a community, what do you initially think of? Maybe, maybe a sport or a hobby. For me, it's bowling. I go bowling every Sunday night. I love bowling with my team and spending time with my bowling team. Right? Maybe for you it's another sport or activity. Maybe you like to do the sip and paint thing and hang out with people. I don't know, like whatever it is. Like there's, there's lots of different things in our world that draw people together around a common interest, right? Now if I told you that, I read an article this morning um, that, that brought up a really surprising thing that draws people together around in a common interest, and that's the New York Times crossword puzzle. The New York Times crossword began in 1942, and the, the purpose of the New York Times crossword coming out in 1942 was to give people something pleasant to talk about that wasn't the news. Think about 1942 and what was going on in the world. What was happening in 1942? World War II. There's nothing but bad news out there. Every time you pick up the paper, you're hearing about other battles. You're hearing about what's going on in Europe or in the Pacific theater. There's no good news. And so the editors of the New York Times published the first New York Times crossword puzzle as an opportunity for people to do something that wasn't related to the war and to have something to talk about that wasn't war, wasn't devastation. And over the years, the New York Times crossword puzzle became kind of a cultural icon. It became a cultural thing. People would talk about the New York Times. Anybody do the New York Times crossword? It's like 
like the best in the world, right? People who do it call it the best crossword in the world, right? It's, it's an amazing, amazing crossword puzzle. If you're a crossword puzzle person, I am not. Not my thing. But this morning, the New York Times published a, a little post, a little blog post. Um, the title of the post was, The Nicest Placed on the Internet. And uh, I guess years ago, they hired somebody uh, to try and make the New York Times crossword more accessible and to help people who weren't crossword solvers get into solving the crossword. And so they created this kind of online community of people. And this is what the manager of that online community has to say. Readers who comment on wordplay or in the forums for spelling bee, connections, and wordle are a warm and generous bunch. They greet newbies, help each other solve, and even check in on one another if someone hasn't posted in a while. They have sat down to meals in North Carolina, California, and England. When members of the community die, the group mourns their loss together. That sense of community even inspired one solver to take off on a road trip to meet some spelling bee friends in real life. One reader commented that she thought the wordplay column and comment section must be the nicest place on the internet. I can't think of a higher compliment. The conversation surrounding these games gives our readers a sense of fellowship that can be otherwise hard to find. Perhaps most important, the community provides readers with a chance to do the very thing that inspired New York Times editors of the 1940s to publish a crossword puzzle in the first place. They can talk about something pleasant and for at least a little while leave their worries at the door. This is how the online community of crossword solvers is described. And to me, it sounds an awful lot like a church, right? Right? Sounds an awful lot like the community that we come here for, for fellowship around something that isn't the devastation of the world, for a gathering of people who will support and care for one another. Even the way she describes the community is a discipleship way, Discipleship is teaching someone to do something. It's apprenticeship. It's telling them and and helping them along the way as they figure out how to go through life. And that's what these people are doing for one another, right? They're discipling one another and how to solve these puzzles. And they're they're stepping in when someone has a hard time figuring out what the right word is. Here are some clues. Here are some tricks. Here are some things you can do to help figure out what this might be. That's discipleship. What she's described is a discipling community of people gathered around one gathering place that provides warmth and kindness and generosity and fellowship in a world that often lacks those very things. And as I read this, I thought, well, how sweet. And then I thought, well, how sad. Because if that's the community that you go to for welcome and warmth and kindness... If that's the place you find the nicest place on the internet, then your fellowship is kind of empty. People can connect through these things, no doubt. And those connections are real. But when I think about this kind of community and fellowship, and then I think about the richness of the community and fellowship that is ours in the church as we come together to follow Jesus and we fellowship with one another and we're truly generous to each other and there's kindness and there's warmth and there's familiarity and there's a warm hug in that. As I think about how we mourn the passing of one another 
how we gather around tables for a meal, as I think about the church of Jesus Christ in its best expression, I think about how all of these others' attempts at community are really just a shadow of that. That this is what we're really looking for because this is what we're really made for. We're made for fellowship. We're made for community. We're made for brotherly love. We're made to embrace one another and care for one another. And the world is offering all kinds of shadow ways of doing that, all kinds of shallower ways of doing that. And while those connections are real, they can't touch the fellowship that is ours in Christ Jesus. They can't touch the fellowship that really exists for those who are gathered around and bonded together by the blood of Jesus Christ rather than some cultural thing. Or they shouldn't be able to. Unfortunately, oftentimes in our church communities, we kind of fail at this and we're not really good at it or we're insecure and we're afraid and so we hold back and we don't really experience the fullness of that community. But at Hillside, what we've said, when we're going through this transition process, if we've been trying to figure out why should we even exist, if there's an amazing church five minutes down the road that way, or there are great gospel preaching churches within a 10 or 15 minute drive, and we live in Denver where people are happy to commute a little further to go to a church community, why should we exist? Why should we exist if we can't compete with the other churches in the area. Why should we exist if there are other churches doing amazing work and incredible gospel work? Why not just send our people to those places and say, you know what? We had a good run. Life was good. God's been faithful. And now go serve there. And the answer that I kept coming back to, and I think our leadership kept coming back to, is community and fellowship. There is a place for a church of our size and our kind where you can't be a stranger where you can't come in and be anonymous and hide, where from day one you're going to be welcomed and warmed and warmly welcomed and embraced and brought in. And yeah, maybe the preaching and preacher won't be as amazing as that one down the street, and maybe the music won't be as like recording ready as it is down the street, although y'all are amazing, thank you so much, right? Maybe we're not going to be recording albums, <laughs> right? Maybe we're not going to have the hippest things. Maybe I won't wear the right kind of hat. Maybe, but what you will find is brotherly love and a community that will embrace and love and care for you no matter where you are on your walk, no matter where you are in your journey, and will walk with you toward Jesus. That's the ideal. Now, we don't always live up to it. It's not perfect, but that's why we exist, for the sake of brotherly love wrapped around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. To be an expression of the kingdom of God and to show the world what it looks like to truly fellowship and be connected to one another across generations, across cultures, across ages, across educational lines, across our different economic pursuits, across our different professional careers, whatever it is. We're here to say a community of people who are radically different can exist when they're bonded together in Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's what was going on here in Thessalonica. As these Christians, these followers of Jesus were coming together and bound together only by Jesus. In this world, in this first century world, when you went into a Greek city like Thessalonica and you 
were trying to pull together the Jewish community and the Gentile community, one, that was a nearly impossible task. Because each of them would say, no, you need to be more like me in order for us to fit together. And then it's not like the Gentile community was all one thing. These people were all kinds of different kinds of people too. And so you're trying to reconcile and bring together this group of people who all think very differently, who all look very different, who are come from radically different places, and yet they're brought together and bound together by the good news of Jesus, that there is a God who loves you and has pursued you, who wrapped himself in flesh and came after you, who died for your sin and now reigns as king over the whole world. And no matter what outside pressures or difficulties you're facing, Jesus is your savior and king, and he is your elder brother who brings this family together. They're brought together by that good news, and that is enough to overcome all of their differences. And then on top of that, in Thessalonica, as we've talked about, they're facing a particular kind of pressure. The Jewish community and the Gentile community do not like this new church. They do not like this community of Jesus followers because they're just too weird. They're too different. The Jewish community thinks that this new Christian community is warping and changing their faith, their religion, and so they're offended by that. The Gentile community looks at this group of Christians and says, wait a minute, you're not like participating with us. You're not worshiping the other gods. You're not able to do like the normal stuff we do out in the world and in the community because you're not going to worship our gods. You can't do certain business practices because, well, you can't engage in the kind of worship that we do or the kind of idol worship that we do. And so the community didn't love this new church. In fact, they were putting hard pressure on it, so much so that they ran Paul and his buddies out of town. And then this church continues to feel the pressure. And yet, when Paul gets the report from Silas and Timothy, who had visited Thessalonica and then come back to visit Paul in Corinth and tell him what was going on back in Thessalonica. When Paul gets the report, this is what he writes. I don't have anything to say to you about brotherly love. You're amazing at that. It's incredible the way that you love each other and not only each other, but the other churches in Macedonia. Your love is growing out not only from your own town, but to the whole region. It's incredible. I don't even have anything to write to you except to tell you keep it up and maybe get better at it. Like Paul, Paul acknowledges here, like we've always, we can always be better. You're doing an amazing job loving each other. Keep it up and love each other even more. Keep loving each other. Brotherly love, as Paul talks about it here, it's the word phileo. It's the word, you get the word Philadelphia from this. Philadelphia means love for the brothers or brotherly love. This idea of brotherly love, that's, that's what Paul uses here. It's not the, the normal like Greek word we think of agape. You've heard the word agape, that kind of unconditional love that God has for everybody. There, he'll use that word here, but what he's talking about really here is brotherly love. And, and here's a concept that might be difficult for some of us. There's a special kind of love that exists between followers of Jesus that doesn't exist between them and other people. Just like there's a special kind of love that exists within your nuclear family that doesn't exist for the other people outside of your family, 
There's a special kind of love that exists within the church that the rest of the world can't experience or doesn't experience. And that's a good thing. In English, we don't have multiple words for love. We don't have multiple concepts for love. And yet we all recognize that there are different kinds of love. The love that a husband and wife have for one another is not the same love as a brother and sister have for one another. Is not the same kind of love as two friends have for one another. So we recognize there are different kinds of love, but because we only have one word for it, we have a hard time distinguishing those things. And yet, throughout history, people have recognized there are these different kinds of love. And one of those loves in the Bible is brotherly love that exists between two followers of Jesus. That in this community, there should be a kind of love that bonds us together that you can only really experience as part of the community. And that... That's a good thing because what it should lead to is such a crazy, amazing bond of love here that when other people see it who haven't experienced it, they say, I want to be part of that. That's the love I want. That's the love I've been longing for. That's the kind of embrace and care and concern for me that I've been looking for. And I haven't even found it in my own family. And I haven't found it in these other places. I haven't found it online with my crossword community. I haven't found it in whatever other group I'm a part of, there's a love that exists among you that I have never experienced and I want to. And that's the kind of love that should mark our community. This brotherly love of care and concern for one another that causes people outside the community to go, wait a minute, there's something different there. I come into your space and I see these people from radically different places. I see these people who have very different politics and different ideas about the world and how are different races and from different kinds of families and from different countries. And I see them together and they have a love for one another that that people who look exactly the same and are interested in all the same stuff don't have. It's amazing. That's the love that should mark our community and that's the love that marked the Thessalonian community. These people loved one another well. They were living out Jesus' command from 1 John 13, where Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Now, that's not the new part. As I have loved you. There's the new part of the command. The command to love one another was always there, back from Leviticus chapter 19. It was written into God's law. But for Jesus then to say, this is the new command, that you would love one another as I have loved you. Now, how has Jesus loved us? He pursued us when we were his enemies. He came after us when we were turned away from him. He loved us through our faults and our sins. He's come to us when we ran far from him. He's come to us when we were nothing like him. He's come to us when we spat in his face. And he has loved us and adopted us and brought us in and pursued us. And that's the brotherly love that marks the community of Jesus' followers. It's a radical kind of love. And this church was living it out. And it isn't a love that just expresses itself in affection for one another. It's not a feeling. Nowhere in the Bible is love talked about as a feeling. Nowhere. Because it isn't. Love is not something, an affection that we feel for one another. Love is what we do. It's how we treat each other. 
It's the way that we care for each other. Love does, as Bob Goff put it. Love does for each other. You can tell me all day you love me. But if the way you talk to me or talk about me puts me down or doesn't care for me, if you know I have a need and don't even express concern about it, not even giving me stuff, but just expressing concern, if you know nothing about my family or my life, show no curiosity, should I believe that you actually love me? If you say, I love you, but the only way that you know anything about my life is by what I post on social media, should I believe that you really love me? The other way around, we say I love you to a lot of people that we're not actually connected to. Am I telling people that I love them, but I've never taken an effort with them? I've never taken a step toward them? All I really know of them is what I see online? Can I really say that I love those people? Love is how we treat one another. Love is how we act toward one another. Love is the way we pursue people. Biblically, love is a verb. It always has been and it always will be. And here's the crazy thing. When we start with love as affection, then it's impossible to fulfill the biblical command to love one another or to love the world. Because then we have no responsibility to the people we don't feel love to. If love is just a feeling, if it starts with affection and then I do, then I can't actually fulfill the command of Jesus to love people. But if love starts with action, then the affection will build. If love starts with the way I treat people, then the way I feel about them will change. I can work myself into feelings of love for another person. You can work yourself into feeling affection for other people by choosing to act lovingly toward them even when you don't feel the feelings of affection for them. And so the, the feelings grow out of our posture toward people. They grow out of our actions toward people. They grow out of the choices we make. Just like last week we were talking about idolatry and how the choices that we make slowly chip away and shape us into the people we'll become. The choice we make to love people leads to an affection for people. And so if you're someone who's like, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about people. I love Jesus, but people kind of drive me crazy. Then it's time for a posture shift. Because we can't love Jesus without loving people. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And the one command Jesus gave above all was to love God and love people. Love does. Just like these Thessalonian Christians were expressing their love for one another by caring for one another, they were expressing their love for the other churches in the region by giving sacrificially. Paul praises the Thessalonian Christians in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul praises the Thessalonian Christians because they gave above and beyond in their poverty for churches that were in need in their region. And they gave above and beyond for churches that were struggling in Jerusalem under the pressure of the leadership there. Love does. Love also works. It may seem like the same thing, but hear me out here. 
Here's what was going on in the church in Thessalonica. These people had heard Jesus was coming back, and they had heard Jesus was coming back soon. And so a number of the people in the city of Thessalonica were like, you know what? If Jesus is coming back, why am I working so hard? If Jesus is coming back soon, why am I toiling away for the benefit of somebody else? Why am I working for my boss? Why am I still doing all this stuff to maintain my life when Jesus is going to come and take me to heaven anyway? So there's no point. Why work? And Paul here addresses that specifically when he says to them, in fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That is, don't stop working because Jesus is coming back. Don't stop working because Jesus will return. He will return. Jesus is coming back. But no one knows when. And until then, continue to live your life and love. And by the way, Thessalonians, you can't be generous if you don't have income. You can't be generous to these other churches and toward those in need if you're not providing for your own needs. So think about it. you got to keep working. Keep doing your thing. Lead a quiet life. Don't be disruptive. Don't be loud. Don't be an obnoxious street preacher. Work your job, do your thing, live your life, provide for your family, and then you can be generous to other people. But don't stop working, don't be lazy. And by the way, think about what it would look like to the rest of the community if this church were full of a whole bunch of lazy people who just sat around waiting for Jesus to come back. You're undermining your own witness, people. You're undermining the very good news of Jesus that you're sharing when you just sit around and you're like, oh, Jesus is coming back. So I ain't got to do anything. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church in a culture that was all about the return of Jesus. In that very much left behind, like Jesus is coming back, the world is going to burn kind of, kind of place. And there was kind of this, this dream of like having my little house in the country and I could sit on my porch and rock and sing gospel songs till I see Jesus on the horizon, you know. That's just, that's, that's the life I want. I just want to sit and wait on Jesus, sing, maybe have a grandkid on my lap. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. Me and Jesus, and I'm just waiting for him to come back. That is not a life of following Jesus. This idea of, like, not working and just waiting on Jesus, far from being a faithful way of following him, is actually a very self-centered way. Of living. Because it says what matters is me and Jesus, my relationship with him. What matters is my salvation. What matters is I'm going to heaven. And you're just focused on that. It's an unloving, uncaring way of living that is actually opposite to the message of Jesus. Opposite to the love and the brotherly love that he moves us into. And so for Paul to write to this church and say, wait, now guys, listen up here. you got to keep working. you got to keep living your life. But do it in such a way that's glorifying to Jesus. Do it in such a way that, that continues this brotherly love you've been in. Keep it up, guys. Keep it up, y'all. Don't just wait on Jesus. Now, I very much doubt there's anybody in this room who is like, just going to quit your job and 
sit out on the mountain and wait for Jesus to come back. I know that seems really attractive to some of us. I very much doubt that's where we are. I think there's a lesson here for us too, though. That we continue in brotherly love and we continue in generosity, like I said a couple weeks ago, specifically because Jesus is returning. And we want the world to be ready for that. Jesus is coming back, whether it's in my lifetime or 500 years from now, it doesn't really matter. I want to be ready for it. And when I look out at the world and I look at a whole bunch of people who don't know him, who don't follow him, I want them to be ready for it too. I want them to know the incredible love of my King Jesus. I want them to know the incredible love of God that's adopted me in. I want this community, when people step in, for them to step away and say, I've never been loved like that before. Is that how God loves me? I want people who grew up in a place where they thought God hated them and put them down, where they thought God was just ready to condemn them, where they thought God was holding a lightning bolt ready to strike them, to walk into this community and go, wait a minute, you mean God really loves me? the way that you've loved me? And we can say, no, no, no. He loves you so much more than that. So much better than that. Our best attempts at love are a mere shadow of the way that our God has loved you in Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, I want him to find a whole bunch of people who are longing and yearning for his love because they've had a taste of it in the community of his saints. I hope that's all of our desire. I think at the end of the day, that's what this text, that's what this little letter is all about. It's about stoking up our desire for love with one another and from Jesus. It's about stoking up our love for God in view of Jesus coming back and saying, I want this love so much. I I want the world to know it. I love this community. I love this love so much. I want everybody to embrace by it. I want everybody to know who my God is. Not because he's ready to strike them down and they should be in fear of hell, but because he has pursued them in love at the very cost of his own life. And that Jesus is the only king worthy of our affection and our work. That Jesus is the only master who gave his life for you and is worthy of all your affection and admiration and allegiance. That's what I want for this community. That's what I think Paul wants for the Thessalonian church. And that's what he's calling us to. A life of love where we can acknowledge my best love is a mere shadow of the love God gave us in Jesus Christ. And I'm just a conduit for it. That I don't get the credit (laughs) for the love that flows through me because it's God's love. I'm a vessel. And I want this community to be a place where every single week when we gather together and we come to this table and we partake of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we are renewed in that love for our God and for one another. When we come together and we preach the gospel in the taking of communion, we are deeply rooted in the love of God for us that has provided forgiveness of sins and adoption into his family. I hope that when we gather together and we come and we partake of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we become that little bit more like that community of brotherly love that's on display for us in this letter.
That's the goal here. And that's why this is the most important thing we do. When we come together as followers of Jesus and we take into ourselves the real presence of Jesus, broken body and shed blood, not in literal flesh and blood, but also not in some symbolic way, that Jesus is truly spiritually present in this meal. When we come, every time we partake, we become a little bit more like him in this means of grace. And so in just a moment, we're going to come and we're going to partake together of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus.